Walk into a room and ask people to name three serial killers. Odds are someone will say Jack the Ripper. Because Jack the Ripper isn't just a serial killer. He's a pop culture villain. He's in books, movies, comics. Only he isn't fictional. He is very real. In 1888, Jack murdered at least five women, all within a single square mile of London. On the surface, these gruesome crimes seem unexplainable. But the more you know about London in the 19th century, the more it begins to make sense. Jack the Ripper may be a symbol of evil, but he's the symptom, not the disease. I'm Ashley Flowers, and this is International Infamy, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm taking you around the world to look at 15 notorious crimes from 15 different countries. Today, we're stopping in London to look at one of the most notorious crimes in world history. Every detective on the case had his own theory, and each twist revealed more of England's dark side. And I'll tell you why. Despite a thorough investigation and a century of armchair sleuthing, Jack the Ripper's true identity is still a mystery. All of that is coming up. Stay with us. Often in an unsolved crime, you can point out exactly where it all went wrong. The moment a lead was dropped or the trial was compromised, I've read about a lot of cases where the police majorly screwed up. And let me tell you, Jack the Ripper, this case isn't one of them. Let's go back to London in 1888. The Metropolitan Police discover the second murder along Whitechapel Road in less than a month. So they do just what they're supposed to. They call in an expert from Scotland Yard, Inspector Frederick Aberline. Inspector Aberline's been to Whitechapel, He worked there for 14 years. This is one of the worst neighborhoods in London. No one has any money, a huge portion of the population doesn't have housing, and apparently one of the more popular crimes is stealing people's dogs. Aberline knows the dangers of Whitechapel better than anyone. And when he arrives, the police fill him in on the latest murder. The victim's name is Polly Nichols. Unlike many women at the time, Polly was literate. She grew up around the newspaper business. She lived in Whitechapel with her husband and kids until her husband started cheating on her with the next door neighbor. At the time, it was basically impossible for a woman to get a divorce. Polly left her husband, but sadly, she was seen as a fallen woman. She had nowhere to live and was doing odd jobs to scrape together money for a bed in a DOS house, which was basically a for-profit homeless shelter. The night of Polly's murder, she didn't have the money to pay for her bed. She was turned away at the Doss house door. Polly told the landlord she'd get her money and be back. But hours later, she was found, lying in the street, dead. Polly was killed right in the spot where she was found. And she must have been killed quickly, within the half hour it took the local police constable to do his rounds. But no one in the area saw or heard anything, which, given how gruesome the scene is, is shocking. Polly's killer strangled her, then tried to behead her with a knife. 
When she's found, her head is barely attached to her body, and her skirts are pulled up to her waist, revealing jagged incisions down her abdomen. The cuts are almost surgical, as if the killer was trying to get to her organs. Despite years of expertise, Inspector Abiline is lost. He says not the slightest clue can be obtained from the crime scene. Still, he tells the officers to interview locals. And here's where they find their first lead. It just so happens there's a mysterious criminal in the area nicknamed the Leather Apron. He's been extorting sex workers under the threat of disembowelment. If they don't pay, he'll cut them open. Just like someone cut open Polly Nichols. Now, there's no evidence that Polly was a sex worker, but it's connection enough that everyone runs with it. People are convinced there is a killer in Whitechapel and his name is Leather Apron. But before the police can even pinpoint a suspect, the killer strikes again. Annie Chapman's body is found around 6 a.m. on Saturday, September 8th, just over a week after Polly's murder. Like Polly, Annie received an unusual amount of education and she married up to a coachman. They lived on his boss's estate, raising their kids until Annie developed alcoholism and her husband kicked her out. With no way to support herself or her drinking habit, Annie ended up on the streets where her killer found her. He murdered Annie the same way as Polly, but then he escalated. This next part is hard to hear, but it's important. The mutilation is what makes Jack the Ripper so horrifying to the people of London and to us. Annie's intestines were ripped out of her body and laid out on the ground above her right shoulder. Annie's womb and part of her bladder were completely gone. Items from her pockets are neatly lined up at her feet. And just a few feet away, there is a piece of a leather apron. The whole scene is horrific. Even in a place like Whitechapel, where murders aren't necessarily uncommon, this level of mutilation isn't something anyone has seen before. And the horror of it basically pours gasoline on the search for the leather apron. Local gangs form lynch mobs. The police work overtime. And Inspector Abiline hires about two dozen locals as plainclothes cops. It feels like everyone in London is looking for this guy. And within two days, they have him in custody. The man the police arrest, John Pizer, is the leather apron. He admits to extorting sex workers, but he insists he's never actually cut anyone up. And Pizer has rock-solid alibis for the nights of both Polly's and Annie's deaths. It becomes painfully obvious. The leather apron is not the killer. And you're probably thinking, but like, what about the piece of leather apron? Well, in the days before Annie's murder, the leather apron theory was all over the newspapers. Everyone in London must have known about it, including whoever actually killed Annie. And a leather apron wasn't some unique fashion statement. They were commonly worn in slaughterhouses all over the East End. It would have been easy for anyone to find a piece and leave it as a decoy. With the leather apron theory busted, Inspector Aberline puts together a new suspect profile. Based on the way Annie Chapman's organs were removed, he thinks the killer is a doctor, a butcher, or a barber. Someone with some kind of basic training in anatomy. 
So police follow some leads on students who left medical school due to mental illness and, get this, a mad butcher who was known to carry a giant knife around town. But all of this goes nowhere. Next, the police start looking for any local creeps, but Whitechapel is filled with local creeps. That guy carrying a giant knife everywhere he goes, he's not even the only one. It is impossible to narrow it down. With police at a loss, locals take matters into their own hands. Two days after Annie's murder, a group of men found the Mile End Vigilance Committee. They organize a neighborhood watch and start crowdfunding reward money for information on the killer. The group's president, this guy named George Lusk, petitions Queen Victoria herself to establish a reward. But as weeks pass with no news, the terror subsides. People let their guards down, and women go back to walking the streets alone at night. This sounds like a terrible idea, but London's East End is filled with women who don't have anywhere else to go. And it seems, for a minute, like the danger is over. But in reality, this is just the calm before the storm. Coming up, I'll cover the night Jack the Ripper killed twice, and the horrifying return of a stolen organ. Now back to the story. By September 30th, 1888, three weeks have passed since the murder of Annie Chapman. But her killer isn't gone for good. And on the night of September 30th, he kills two more women in one night. It begins just after 1 a.m. on Burner Street in Whitechapel. Louis Deemschutz is driving his cart home when his horse spooks. It's pitch black and he can't see what's freaking his horse out. So he pokes into the darkness with his whip and hits something soft. Curious, he lights a match and he sees there's a woman lying in the street. Louis can't tell whether she's dead or just drunk. Now, he could just ignore her, but something about this situation unnerves him. He's nearly home already, so he heads inside, checks on his wife, and then comes back with a candle. The candle reveals a pool of blood that Lewis was practically standing in just minutes before. And it reveals the body of 44-year-old Liz Stride. Lewis calls the police, and within a few minutes, they're on the scene. And this is what they find. Liz's throat is slashed, but she's not cut open the way Polly Nichols and Annie Chapman were. She's clutching a pack of mints in one hand, so we know there was no struggle, and her body is still warm. So she has to have been killed in this alley, and recently, but no one heard a thing. Some people question if Liz was really a victim of the same killer as Polly and Annie since she wasn't mutilated. But here's what detectives think. When Lewis rolled by with his cart, he was probably feet away from the killer. He interrupted the killer mid-murder, and before Lewis could light his match, the suspect ran off. After that, the killer is probably unsatisfied. He didn't have time to violate Liz like he wanted to, so he had to find another victim to take it out on. We know this because Liz Stride isn't the only woman who gets killed that night. She isn't even the only woman who gets killed that hour. Less than 45 minutes after Liz is found, a police constable finds another body in Mitre Square, 46-year-old Kate Eddowes. 
Ironically, Kate may have made her last few dollars singing songs about the Whitechapel killer. She'd worked as a traveling musician writing songs about current events. But like the other victims, she wound up on the streets, alone and vulnerable. Like the other victims, Kate's throat is cut, left to right. There's a long surgical incision down the center of her torso. Her intestines are ripped out and arranged around her shoulders. And the killer also cut out her womb and left kidney. But he took those with him. The constable finds Kate's body at around 1.44 a.m. He last circled past at 1.30, which means the killer found Kate, killed her, performed major surgery, and escaped in less than 15 minutes. Mitre Square is maybe a dozen blocks from the Liz Stride crime scene, which, remember, is still active, with tons of detectives roaming around. It's incredibly bold to commit a murder while the police are convening just down the block. The square itself is also surrounded by homes and tenements full of people, but no one wakes up. With the amount of violence done to these victims, you'd expect that someone would have seen or heard the attacks, or at least spotted a guy covered in blood. But he may have escaped more easily than you think. For one thing, he slashes his victims' throats from left to right, breaking the carotid artery so that the blood flows away from him. He doesn't get that messy. And as I mentioned, there are slaughterhouses all over the East End. So it's not uncommon to see a man covered in blood. Most importantly, though, tenement houses, which filled the neighborhood, often didn't have locks on the main doors. The killer could have snuck off through the tenement house hallway and everyone would assume he was one of the neighbors. And I know that sounds pretty bold, walking through buildings full of strangers, probably covered in blood right after two people were found dead, but it seems like tempting fate was part of this killer's M.O. On October 1st, newspapers published a letter allegedly written by the killer, signed Jack the Ripper. This is the first time anyone uses that name for the Whitechapel killer, and obviously it sticks. The letter, which is known as the Dear Boss Letter, was sent to the Central News Agency in London. In it, Jack claims responsibility for the crimes and threatens to enclose a future victim's ear in a future letter. He seems to know some details about the crimes, but all the details he mentions are already widely known, so it's kind of just written off as a hoax. Until the Central News Agency gets a postcard with the same handwriting. This leads them to contact the police, who take a look and basically say, yeah, both letters are probably fake. We have no idea who wrote them, though. After the publication of the first letter, dozens more pour in. Many of them signed Jack the Ripper. Most of them are obvious hoaxes. Still, the Metropolitan Police investigate every single one, just in case there's a real confession. And in the meantime, newspapers keep publishing the letters, even though they know they're probably fake. And they do that because they're making a killing off Jack the Ripper coverage. One tabloid, the Illustrated Police News, presents details of the case like panels in a comic book, without even bothering to verify any of the facts. Some newspapers start printing secondhand accounts of alleged sightings of Jack the Ripper, which are clearly made up. It's like some really offensive fan fiction. And I use that term because this was people's entertainment in Whitechapel and across the world. 
The tale of Jack the Ripper stretches up to the top of the British Justice Department and across the oceans. But all that press coverage just makes locals more scared. Even George Lusk, the president of the Mile End Vigilance Committee, is convinced someone's watching him, and he requests that police guard his house. Things are getting out of hand, and police are eager to end this as soon as possible. From October 3rd to the 16th, they go room to room across Whitechapel, interviewing everyone. They even bring in bloodhounds in hopes they'll find the killer's scent. And then... George Lusk gets a kidney in the mail. You heard that right. Someone mails the president of the Mile End Vigilance Committee a human kidney. And there's a note. It reads, Mr. Lusk, sir, I send you half the kidney I took from one woman. Preserved it for you. The other piece I fried and ate. Obviously, George is horrified. He doesn't want to believe this is real. He tells himself this has to be a prank. It must be a dog's kidney or something. But he has the kidney examined by doctors anyway, and three different doctors confirm it's human. Of course, that doesn't mean Jack the Ripper sent it. This could be a practical joke by some medical student, right? But the kidney isn't preserved in embalming fluid. It's preserved in liquor. And here's where it gets really weird. The doctor who performed Kate's autopsy noted that her remaining kidney was pale, bloodless, with slight congestion, all symptoms of Bright's disease. And when this kidney is examined by a specialist, he also notes symptoms of Bright's disease. Of course, there was no DNA testing at the time, so there's no way to prove if the kidney belonged to Kate. But real or hoax, it becomes part of the mythology of Jack the Ripper. And whether Jack is responsible for any of the letters or none of them, he's been cemented as a letter-writing cannibal serial killer, the first of his kind. He's the monster under the bed for people who can't afford a bed. And as hard as the police try, no one can track him down. November comes with no arrests. Police are still flooded with useless tips. Inspector Aberline is on the verge of a nervous breakdown, and the police commissioner straight up resigns. And then, on November 9th, there's another attack. This is Jack the Ripper's worst work yet, the murder of Mary Jane Kelly. Coming up, I'll discuss how Jack the Ripper may have chosen his victims and Inspector Aberline's top suspect. Now back to the story. Unlike Jack the Ripper's other victims, Mary Jane Kelly had a permanent address, a rundown one-room apartment in the East End. She was murdered in her own bed, not outside on the street. So at first, police are thinking, probably not Jack the Ripper. But when they get to the scene, this is what they find. Mary Jane's face has been mutilated so badly it's almost unrecognizable. Her intestines and other dismembered body parts are arranged around her corpse, and the killer took Mary Jane's heart. So looking at this, it seems like it has to be Jack the Ripper. But there's that strange detail. Mary Jane is the first victim who was killed indoors. It turns out, though, 
this might not be an anomaly, at least not entirely. See, it's pretty obvious how the killer got inside. There's a broken window right next to the door. It seems likely that he reached in through the window, unlocked the door, and snuck up on Mary Jane while she was asleep. And according to historian Hallie Rubenhold, if that's the case, this might actually be the missing link between the seemingly random victims. All the Ripper's victims died on their backs right where they were found. Polly, Annie, Liz, and Kate were all known to sleep outside at times. Maybe they were targeted as easy prey because they were already asleep. It would have been easy for Jack to catch a woman lying in a dark alley and strangle her before she could even scream. And people in London in 1888 weren't too different from people now. They saw people living on the streets and looked away. Jack was counting on the fact that no one would be looking at his victims too closely until he had plenty of time to escape. It's just a theory, but after five murders, all police have are theories. And now that Jack the Ripper is attacking women in their own homes, the terror in London hits a new pitch. The police increased their plainclothes patrol to 143 men, and witness tips keep pouring in. Inspector Aberline has some of those undercover officers follow the supposed witnesses around the East End, hoping to pinpoint a suspect. But after Mary Jane's murder, there isn't another killing. Weeks pass. The letters stop coming, and newspapers find other stories to report. It all just stops, as suddenly as it started. At the end of 1888, after four months of investigation, Scotland Yard pulls Inspector Aberline off the case. And that's it. The case dies, and Jack the Ripper is never found. So, who did it, and why? Depending on who you ask, you'll get a hundred different answers. If Jack wasn't a doctor, a butcher, or a barber, some say it was a midwife covering up botched abortions or maybe a sailor who killed during the one week a month he was in London. Some people connect the Ripper to London's so-called high-rip gangs. These gangs were known for random street violence and ripping victims up with knives as a form of blackmail. Other theories are completely bizarre, like the killings were part of a cover-up by the Freemasons or the royal family, or that Jack the Ripper was Alice in Wonderland author Lewis Carroll. Why? Because the nonsense in his books could be anagrammed into a confession. All these theories are pretty forced, but they show one thing. Catching Jack the Ripper is a century-long obsession. After leaving Whitechapel, Inspector Abilene didn't stop thinking about the case either. And 15 years later, in 1903, he shared the name of the man he believed was Jack the Ripper, George Chapman. And no, George Chapman has no relation to the victim Annie Chapman. His real name is actually Severin Klazowski. He adopted the name George Chapman after immigrating to London from Poland, where he was a junior surgeon. We don't know what brought George to London in the summer of 1887, but we know he starts working in Whitechapel as a barber. Over the next year and a half, at least five women are brutally murdered by Jack the Ripper in the same area where he lives and works. And George Chapman's whereabouts during this time are extremely murky. Not long after the murders stop, George marries a woman named Lucy. In the spring of 1891, they leave London and immigrate to the U.S. 
George finds work in a barbershop where the couple lives in a back room. One day, according to Lucy, they get into a pretty bad fight. George forces Lucy onto their bed and holds her down. He covers her mouth so she can't scream. Just then, the barbershop bell rings. George leaves to attend to his customer. Lying on the bed, terrified, Lucy feels something under the pillow. It's a knife. When George comes back, he's cooled down, so he leaves Lucy alone. But he does tell her that he was planning to use his knife to cut off her head. A few years later, George and Lucy separate, and George goes back to London. There, he takes a new wife, or at least that's what he tells her. They never actually legally marry. Not only does George lie to his new bride, he starts dosing her with poisonous antimony. She withers away, and within a few months, she's dead. A few years later, in 1901, George apparently convinces another woman they're married, and he poisons her the same way. Then, in 1902, George marries a third woman and poisons her just a few months later. But her family suspects foul play, and finally, George is arrested. The investigation reveals that this is the third wife he's poisoned in five years. The man is a serial killer, and he's found guilty and hanged in 1903. Inspector Aberline hears about the trial and thinks, wait a second, everything about this guy lines up with Jack the Ripper. And that's not all. George Chapman was in the right place at the right time to commit three other murders that were eerily similar to Jack the Ripper killings. In 1889, there was the murder and mutilation of Alice McKenzie in Whitechapel. The throat slitting of Francis Coles in February 1891, also in Whitechapel. And the gory disembowelment of Carrie Brown in April 1891 in New York City. Some people attribute these murders to Jack the Ripper. Others blame a copycat. But they're all unsolved. And they all happened while George Chapman was in town. Now, you're probably thinking, why would he switch from a knife to poison? But George wouldn't be the first serial killer to switch MOs. Maybe it was to avoid being caught. And the big thing about Jack the Ripper, this was a killer who relished a prolonged attack. And what's more prolonged than slowly poisoning someone, watching them waste away more each day until they die? But like all the other theories, this rests on the assumption that Jack the Ripper was a serial killer. But what if none of the murders are actually connected? I mean, no one can even agree on which Whitechapel murders were Jack the Ripper. The police files include 11 murders, but most researchers think there were only five. And even with those five, there are strange differences in the cases. Remember, Liz Stride wasn't mutilated. Mary Jane was killed indoors. With the amount of press the Ripper was getting, it makes you wonder if all these victims were really killed by the same person, or if it was just a series of copycats. Maybe the police failed because they were tracking a serial killer who didn't exist. Jack the Ripper may have been a scapegoat for a bigger problem in Whitechapel. I mean, it's definitely easier to believe there's one boogeyman stalking the streets than that any man you meet in a dark alley could kill you. And it is easier to hunt for a killer than it is to solve the problems of poverty, alcoholism, and homelessness. In a way, Jack the Ripper was a warning for everyone in London. Don't go into the bad part of town. Don't drink. 
Don't leave your husband. Don't engage in sex work or Jack the Ripper will get you. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with another story. And if you want to hear more, you can find all episodes of International Infamy for free on Spotify. International Infamy was co-created by Max Cutler and Ashley Flowers and is a Spotify original from Parcast starring Ashley Flowers. It's executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of International Infamy was written by Maggie Admire, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and Allie Wicker, fact-checking by Anya Bayerly, and research by Chelsea Wood. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out Crime Junkie and all AudioChuck originals. Chuck originals.